Uh, Father, thank you uh, for this day, for bringing us here. We ask that you would give us uh, a grace as we hear your word uh, preached, that you would help me as I preach it. Um, I pray that you would draw us all closer to your son, Jesus, and that you would glorify his name. We pray this in his name. Amen. So an hour, an hour or so earlier, before they had heard Peter preach, if the thousands of people in the crowd thought of Jesus at all, they thought of him as a blasphemer. A blasphemer hung on a tree under God's curse. But that was an hour ago, maybe. Since then, the 120 had had poured out of the house where they were staying into the street, preaching in different tongues. And, And people from all over the world, who many of whom spoke obscure language languages, heard God exalted by that 120, those 120 people in their own tongues. Strange thing it was. How did it happen? What does it mean? And then after that, uh, Peter stands up and he says, here's what it means. The prophet Joel said that in the last days, the spirit of God would be poured out on all flesh, young, old, male, female, slave, free. They will all prophesy. Now, everyone listening to Peter knew of Joel's prophecy. It was a famous one. Everyone would have known about it. And and they all would have known that all flesh, that all flesh will prophesy. They would all know that didn't mean every single human being on the planet, but every single human being who belongs to God, all of God's people. And so when Peter says, this that you're hearing and seeing is Joel's prophecy fulfilled, and they see it, they see the languages, and they hear them with their own ears. There might have been, I think there probably was, the first stab of apprehension, of fear. Why hasn't what's happened to them happened to me? I'm a Jew. I'm descended from Abraham. I'm an Israelite. I'm part of God's people. But that pouring out of the Spirit, at least what Peter says is pouring out of the Spirit, that's only happened to the people who were with Jesus. What's going on? And then Peter continued, "This, this Jesus of Nazareth was attested to you by God through mighty works and wonders. And it's a remarkable thing that Peter says that with such confidence. He's not worried that anyone in the crowd is going to say, oh, no, he didn't. I didn't see any of that. Because they all saw it. No one objects. They knew Jesus worked wonders before their eyes. No one disputes it. Peter says, this Jesus you put to death by the hands of evil men. That's Gentiles. It was according to God's purpose and his determined plan, but you did it. God did not put that evil in your hearts. That was you. You did that. You killed the promised one. 
The one the prophets were told. The one who God sent to save you. You killed him. But God overruled your verdict. The, the judge of all the earth overturned your, your decision. He raised Jesus from the dead, Peter says, and we've all seen him. Every single one of us, all the 120, have seen him alive. And that also should come as no surprise to you. Because David, your ancestor, your, your, your great King David, wrote about it. Uh, you will not, he wrote, you will not, O Lord, abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. And by corruption there, he means the decay of the, the body. You won't let your Holy One see the decay of, of, of his body. And, and the, the implicit question that, that, that Peter asks in quoting that text is, do you think David's talking about himself there? He died. His, his tomb is right here in Jerusalem. You can go walk over and check it out. His bones are still in there. But go to Jesus' tomb. You know where he was buried. You know he was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Go to that tomb and check it out. It's empty. There's nobody there. Because God raised him up. Well, where is he? That's a good question. Why do you think the Spirit of God has been only poured out on Jesus' followers? Well, David also wrote, The Lord, that's Yahweh, said to my Lord, that's Adonai, my, my king, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David wrote about the ascent of his king, of his Messiah, of his Lord, his descendant, his, the ascent of his descendant, the Messiah to the right hand of God, exalted to God's right hand. That's where Jesus is, ruling as king of kings and lord of lords. You, people in the crowd, you've just seen and heard with your own ears his first royal act. The Lord Jesus Christ has poured out his spirit on all flesh. And the people of God are those who believe in God's son, Jesus, whom you killed. Now, as Peter finishes that sermon, the enormity of what they've done, the weight of what they've done comes crashing down on, on their shoulders. Or as Luke describes it in verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. It's violent language there. It's the kind of language you would use if you were going to stab someone. They were thrust through. The armor that has up to this point protected them, has been, has been shattered. You know, before this, if they thought at all about Jesus' death, they would have said, well, it's right that he should have died. And I'm happy I was a part of it. He claimed to be God's son, and that's blasphemy. His works were empowered by demons. So yes, I lent my voice to those crying out for his blood, for those to, for, to those saying crucify him. Yes, I yelled just as loudly as all the rest. It was a good thing for me to do. The law says we put blasphemers to death. He was a blasphemer. And the fact that he was crucified proves that I was right because he died under God's curse. 
person hanging on a tree is under God's curse. But now, after Peter's sermon, all of that self-justification has been cut through and battered down, and it's lying in the ground. They've been cut to the heart. Now, if you, if you do not trust in Jesus, you must likewise be cut to the heart. That's what God's law does. That's the purpose of God's law. The Holy Spirit takes the law of God and pierces you with it. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind. You must love your neighbor as yourself. You must think pure and holy and godly thoughts all the time. There must be no jealousy no malice, no unforgiveness, no lust, no desire for anything at all evil in your heart. The Spirit uses the law to pierce through your defenses. And beforehand, if he does this with you, beforehand you may have thought, hey, I'm a decent, I'm a decent kind of guy, and if God's a decent kind of God, I'll be fine. But the Spirit, maybe through a preacher, maybe through a friend, maybe as you're reading your Bible at home, I don't know, cuts through all of that and it all falls to the ground. And you see yourself in the full, pure, piercing light of a holy God. You're cut to the heart. That happened to me. That's been, when I was converted, that happened to me. I felt it. And when it did, one urgent, burning question rose up in my mind. And you read it right there. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? That's, that's the best possible question they can ask. And they asked the apostles, the best possible people to ask. And they, uh, they can, the apostles can provide the best possible answer. So it's a great question to, to great people who can answer it. Now notice, before we talk about how, what Peter says, notice that there's no pleading at all on the part of the crowd. There's no excuse-making. There's no denials, no justifications. No one says, Now, brothers, I only had three hours of sleep the night before, so I was really exhausted. That's why I cried out for Jesus' blood. I was just really tired, and just went along with the crowd. Brothers, my parents were really cruel to me as a child. So therefore, I cried out with the crowd to have him crucified. Brothers, I only, I only mouthed the words crucify him. I didn't really say it out loud. I just didn't want to make a big stink about it. But I just mouthed the words there in the crowd. Brothers, that guy over there, he was really screaming for Jesus' blood. I was saying it, but not as loud as that guy. There's nothing like that. Brothers, what shall we do? That's, that's a question that accepts personal responsibility for everything that Peter has said that they've done. Now, uh, last Sunday, you might remember this. Last Sunday, John made the, the good and, and true point that you and I are also responsible for Jesus' death because God laid my sin on Jesus, and he, Jesus bore my, my punishment. My sin, your sin, put him there. 
So we're responsible for his death in that sense. But, but it does, coming to grips with that, recognizing that, understanding that, that takes some, some reasoning. You have to think about it a bit before you realize that, that, it, that it's true. And the reason you have to think about it a bit before you realize it's true is because you and I weren't there. I, I, I probably would have raised my voice and said, crucify him if I'd been there, but thank God I wasn't there to do it. You weren't either. So your responsibility is of a different sort than the people in that crowd who were there. The the words fell from their lips. They saw him. They heard him. They saw the miracles that he did. They saw him fulfilling prophecy before their own eyes. And they still demanded that he die. They killed, and Peter will say this in the next chapter, they killed the author of life. They demanded the execution of the only righteous and innocent man ever to walk the face of the earth, who is also the maker and judge of all things and people. I mean, if if you're just in purely human terms, if, if your child were killed, how would you feel about his or her murderer? They killed God's only son. I don't know. Um, I don't know what, li- what sins. I don't know what sins lie in your past. I don't know what sin has you in its grip right now. I don't know what you need to confess this morning. Whatever it is, I can tell you this. It does not rise to this level. So you might think that Peter, hearing this question asked, would say to them, well, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do. You killed God's son. You, You cannot be forgiven. It's done. That's not what Peter says. Repent, he says, verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now you might have noticed if you read back over Peter's sermon any time in the last week or two, if you read over that sermon again, that while Jesus' crucifixion is at the heart of Peter's sermon, and while Peter said that the crucifixion was according to God's definite plan and foreknowledge, Peter never explained why. Why would God plan such a horrible thing? Peter's burden during his sermon was to make the people see what they've done. And it may be that if he had went on, gone on an excursus on the reason for the cross and its effect at that moment, uh, before they felt in their hearts the weight of guilt and the the stain of sin, uh, they may not have understood it. You you can't, I think. You, You can't understand the cross rightly until you know the depths of your own guilt and sin 
until you know in your bones that you should have been there instead of him. Then, when you see that, then, then you can grasp and understand the definite plan and foreknowledge of God to set himself down in our flesh and die for us. And so invincibly scouring is his blood that it can cleanse even those who killed him. Now that being true, that his blood can cleanse those who have committed the greatest sin, that being true, what chance does your sin have against the blood of Christ? What shelter remains for your guilt? What refuge is there for your shame? There's none. There's none. No stain of sin. No stain of sin withstands Christ's blood shed for you. And so on that ground and on that foundation... Peter answers, you can be forgiven. Repent. You're familiar with that word, I think. Repent, it means uh, you know, turn around. But we got to be careful about what it, what it means because I've heard some explanations uh, that aren't quite right. I've heard some explain that, that true repentance means that you, you just stop sinning and then you've truly repented. And so if you're still sinning, you haven't really repented yet. Well, if that's true, then no one has ever repented in the entire human history, the history of the entire human race. No one's ever repented, if that means stopping sinning. No, repentance means that you agree with God that your sin is sin. You don't conceal it. You don't hide it. You don't excuse it. You don't justify it. You don't lessen it. Repentance means that you acknowledge that you bear hell-worthy guilt for your sin and that you're helpless to do anything about it. And you turn then to Jesus and trust in him. You trust that his blood cleanses you from all unrighteousness. Repentance means that you come to Jesus like this crowd, does. It means you come to him like that tax collector did in the, in the, in the, in the gospel reading. Without a, a single plea, without any self-justification, have mercy on me, Lord, a sinner. And for everyone who repents, for all who repent, for all who call on Jesus' name, there will be forgiveness. Complete, full, free Everlasting forgiveness. Now you'll notice that Peter adds baptism here. Repent and be baptized. And it makes perfect sense that he does that because being laying down in the water and raised up signifies death and, and resurrection. To be uh, born again means the old you, your old fleshy you is crucified with Christ and buried with him and then raised up with him as well. Uh, the, the baptism should be mentioned here too because it, it, 
when you come to Jesus, he, he gives you a bath. His blood washes away your sin. And baptism is a fitting thing to talk about here because of the way it's done. You, when you were baptized, hopefully, you didn't baptize yourself. Someone else baptized you. You don't baptize yourself any more than you cleanse yourself or give yourself new life or raise yourself from the dead. Jesus does those things to you. And so you come like a helpless baby to the baptismal font to be baptized. The water is the, is the outward visible sign of the inward invisible power by which God makes you a new man or a new woman. I wear this, this wedding ring here, right? On my left hand, on my, whatever this finger this is, but on, on this finger, I'm not, well, that would look bad. Here, this finger is where my wedding ring is. You maybe can't see it, but it's there. I wear it there. Uh, and I remember, I remember the day that Ann slipped that thing on my finger. We just made a covenant. God had just joined our souls together in marriage until death. Now, you, you couldn't, if you were at the wedding, you would have seen the wedding, but you wouldn't have seen the God joining our souls together. You wouldn't have seen the commingling of souls. It was invisible. It was more real than anything you would have seen, but it's invisible. But you can see this. This is the sign of it. I wear it everywhere as a, as a badge and a token uh, that tells me I'm not my own... Uh, I belong to her, and she wears hers so that she can know she belongs to me. I can look at it and know that God has truly joined us together, and the covenant we made remains unbroken. Baptism, likewise, is the badge of the new covenant. Now, the difference, of course, between the water of baptism and the ring on my finger is that the ring signifies a two-party covenant in which there are obligations that I must fulfill and that she must fulfill. Baptism, however, seals a covenant in which Jesus has fulfilled by himself all the obligations. If you trust in, in Jesus, you can look back to the water of your baptism like I look to this ring and be assured that all the things signified by that water have been accomplished in you and for you by Jesus. Now you might think, if you're not reading carefully, you might think that, that Peter is saying baptism itself, along with repentance, brings about the forgiveness of sins. I don't think he's saying that. The reason I don't think he's saying that is because in the very next chapter, in chapter 3, verses 18 through 20, after a very similar sermon to a, to a crowd, he says this, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. And he never mentions baptism there. If baptism itself blotted out your sins, I think he'd need to mention that every time. I know I'm sure that those in chapter 3 were baptized, but, but Peter doesn't mention baptism there because baptism is the outward badge under which the forgiveness of sins is promised. The, the instrument, the, the, the means by which forgiveness is given to you is trust in Jesus. If you are baptized, but do not trust in Jesus, your baptism, as wonderful as it is, and it's wonderful, won't help you. 
But if you trust in Jesus, baptism is a great gift intended to be a comfort for you, an assurance for you. And Jesus attached his promises to it, uh, just like the promises of, of Ananias' wedding are attached to, attached to this ring. Now, I want you to notice also they're baptized in the name of Jesus. And that might strike you as odd since uh, uh, Jesus gave a formula for baptism. He said, go out into the world and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself gave those words. And you might think, well, what is Peter just changing that up on, on, a, on a whim? No, I think, I think Peter, bearing Jesus' authority, wants these people specifically and these people uniquely because they're responsible for Jesus' death, to give themselves over to be washed in Jesus' name. And once that happens, Peter says, you will be members of the all flesh upon whom Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You'll be living tabernacles at that point. God will dwell in you. And that's the gift of God to everyone who, who believes. Now, some of my friends who I love very much, um, uh, who are not Anglican, but Baptist maybe, or non-denominational, uh, notice there's a sequence here. Um, repent, then be baptized. And they, they note rightly, that that pattern continues through Acts. Uh, you, people who are repentant, they come to faith, and then they're baptized. And so they'll look at what we do when we baptize babies, and they'll say, what are you, what are you crazy Anglicans doing baptizing your babies before they, they profess faith? That's, that's not there. Well, um, they're right about the pattern they notice. That's absolutely there throughout Acts. But I, I would ask my my friends who I love very much, what other pattern could there be? Because there aren't any second-generation Christians yet. It's, it's all first-generation stuff. They're all going to be, most of them are going to be converts. But there are, and we'll see this later in Acts, there are actually instances where whole households are baptized, and maybe those households perhaps included babies. We don't know. But one of the main reasons we baptize babies is right there in verse 39, actually, if you look at it. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now that language may not ring any bells for you, but if you were a first century Jewish person, that language would ring bells. Lots of bells going off in your head at this point. Because in Genesis 17, and if you want to turn there, you can, but you don't have to. In Genesis 17, actually, if you do, I forgot to write the verse numbers down, so you might be lost, so I'm sorry. But in Genesis chapter 17, God says to Abraham this, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring or children after you throughout their generations. Very similar language to the language Peter just used. And then... God gives an outward and visible sign to represent the covenant. He says, God says, This is my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Circumcision. Now, we don't have a lot of time to go into circumcision, so you can thank, thank God for that. But, uh, but circumcision is, was the outward 
cutting away of the flesh. And it signified an inner heart shorn of the flesh, where the flesh had been cut away from the heart, a heart devoted to, to Yahweh. So the prophets, you'll notice this if you read the Old Testament, the prophets often call out to Israel and say, repent, be baptized in your heart and not just in the flesh. So given that, uh, you might think that God would say, when he's giving these instructions to Abraham, that he might say, okay, this promise is for your children, and, and when your children come to the point, when your male child comes to the point where he repents and believes, that's when you should circumcise him. Because circumcision symbolizes the inner heart of faith. But in, instead, God says, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Circumcision is the outward sign of a heart devoted to God. And new baby boys are also circumcised? Why is that? Now, we've seen before, it's possible for an eight-day-old baby to believe in Yahweh or in, in the Lord. Uh, John the Baptist, you remember, did that in his mother's womb. Uh, but we have to say that you know, not everyone is John. So why do this? Circumcision uh, in the old covenant would bring a boy into the covenant family so that he could, from the very earliest moments of his life, participate in the feasts and ceremonies and worship, learning from infancy to trust in Yahweh so that all the promises attached to his circumcision would truly be his. Now, uh, if you're a Jew and you're in Peter's crowd, a crowd back in Acts, um, and he's just identified baptism as a sign of the new covenant using language God used about offspring, about children, when he instituted circumcision for Abraham's children. Well, if Peter didn't mean for children to be baptized too, he'd need to say, hey, don't baptize your babies. This covenant is not for your babies. Because otherwise, everyone there is going to assume we're baptizing our babies. If the old covenant included children, why would the new and better covenant not include children? Why would it, would it forbid them? Now, when we baptize a baby, we pray that God might, at that moment, give that child uh, faith. But the parents vow to raise the baby in the covenant, to take part in worship, which is great, um, to know the scriptures and to trust the Lord and to love him so that everything baptism signifies might be his or hers in the very earliest ages. Now, okay, let me just hasten to add here. Since there is no command in the Bible anywhere, baptize your babies, and there's no command in the Bible anywhere that says, don't baptize your babies, this is something that we can agree to disagree about. We can be brothers and sisters and love each other and disagree about this whole thing. Uh, you can think I'm totally wrong, and that's fine. It's okay for you to be wrong. Uh, we, can, we can agree to disagree about this. So uh, just want to let you know. But this is why we baptize babies. You need to know that. All right, so notice that Peter mentions those far off. Everyone the Lord calls to himself. That, that's, that says, when he mentions the far off people, that says God in Jesus is right now 
fulfilling his promise to Abraham, making him the father of many nations. His offspring, Jesus, is going to bless the nations of the world. And you here this morning are caught up in Peter's words here. You're here. I'm here. Because God brought people from every nation to himself through Jesus. We've all been baptized by the same baptism into the same Lord, who's still this day pouring out his flesh. On, or pouring out a spirit on all flesh. And with many other words, we're told in verse 40, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. Now, I mentioned last time I preached, which is two weeks ago, I mentioned last time I preached that Peter's sermon, if you take it and read it in front of the mirror, uh, and even with you know, pausing at, at dramatic moments, um, it'll take like 10 minutes at max to read the thing out. And you might wonder, you know, why, why can't Matt do that? He should, if Peter can do it, Matt can too. But uh, I, I can do that, actually. I was trained to do that. But I love you too much to, to, give, to shortchange you that way, so I'm not going to. Peter must have also loved these people very much because Luke tells us here he only provided us with a summary of his sermon, that Peter really spoke many other words. Peter bore witness to the work of Jesus, no doubt. He bore witness to Jesus' resurrection. And look at that, he exhorted them. That's a very churchy word. What does it mean to exhort? It's to urge strongly. That's to urge emphatically. That's to, to speak with urgency. Why so urgent? If you, if you see someone standing on a dam, and you see the dam beginning to crack and water pouring through, and the person on top of the dam uh, doesn't see it, even if you hate the person, I hope you'd say something. Right? Not, just, not just be quiet and let the, and let the person die. And, and if you did say something, I hope you wouldn't say, hey, hey, I, I, you might want to maybe get off the dam if you feel like it at some point. I'll leave it up to you. I hope you would speak with urgency. I hope you would exhort, get off the dam. It's going to break. That's what Peter's doing. Peter knows one of two things will happen to every person in that crowd. Either Jesus will return and each one will stand before his throne of judgment, or each one will die and stand before Jesus' throne of judgment. The same is true of everyone in every crowd. One of those two things will happen to you and it will happen to me. And there is only one way that goes well for anyone. Save yourselves, Peter says, from this crooked generation. Now, there's debate about that word generation. Is it like generation X or generation Z? Is it, a, is it an age group that he has in mind? Is, is Peter saying this present generation will face God's judgment for rejecting and crucifying his son? Jesus did say to his disciples that, that his generation, that generation, would, would face God's, God's judgment, that Jerusalem, the city, would fall, and he said the temple would be destroyed. There wouldn't be one uh, stone left on another. And, and that prophecy was fulfilled in 70 AD, about 40 years from when Peter is speaking here. And it may be that Peter has that in mind. Separate yourself from this crooked generation. But sometimes generation refers to a people originating from one source, and so in that case, the crooked generation may refer to the whole human race. Everybody descended from Adam is the crooked generation. 
Regardless of what Peter actually meant, both are, are true. I don't know which one he meant, but both warnings are true. This generation, humanity, is crooked. We love what we should hate, and we hate what we should love. And, and that's why that generation rejected Jesus. Whichever Peter means. Those who heard him then, and those who hear him now, his instruction is, rebel from the rebels. Save yourself from this generation. Now, that's not a great translation, the save yourself part. That's not a great translation. It probably should be let yourself be saved or let yourselves be saved. But, but no one in that crowd, no one in that crowd, and I hope no one here thinks that Peter means you have the power to save yourself. You have the power to remove your own sins and to keep the law and to cleanse your heart. No, no, no. Peter means take hold of Jesus. Save yourself by taking hold of Jesus who's done all of that work for you and who offers you a new life here and now that goes on forever. Save yourself by trusting Jesus. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now you might remember the night before Jesus died he gave this promise. Truly, truly I say to you whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Jesus made that promise again the night before he died. And the question should be, as you're reading that text, that's in John, if you're reading that text, is, uh, have I ever raised a dead person after the person's been dead for four days? Uh, have I ever walked on water? Have I ever calmed a storm with, by saying, be quiet? And if you haven't done those things, you might wonder, what on earth did he mean by greater works? Those aren't the works that he meant. During Jesus' ministry, less than 1,000 people turned to him. But you, he says, will do greater works. He promised that, not, not apart from him. Not apart from me, Jesus says, but because I go to the Father. Because I go to the Father and I pour out my spirit. Jesus intercedes with the Father, interposing his blood between sinners and judgment. And as a result, God sends his spirit upon the church. And the church goes out preaching, sharing the gospel. And God, as a result, gives mercy to sinners. He opens ears, he opens eyes, he opens hearts we see here. And one day, 3,000 souls saved and baptized. Can you imagine that? Small church, 120 people. Now suddenly has to figure out what to do with 3,000 brand new baby Christians who come from all over the world. What do you do with that? Well, that's the question for next week. Let's stop and pray. <laughs> Father, we thank you um, that despite the depth of our sins and the, the weight of our guilt, that your son's death, that the blood of Christ is sufficient, more than sufficient, infinitely more than sufficient to wipe away um, the stain of all of our sins. We thank you for that knowledge. We thank you for washing us in, the, in baptism and uh, giving us a sign of baptism to give us assurance that we have been washed. And I pray, Lord, that you would... Um, 
be with us as we go out into the world, and especially as we talk to those who don't yet know you, that you would give us your grace and your spirit um, that we might, or that you might use us to draw um, those people to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.